what I want to do is uh, to set, to present some remarks that uh, establish some of the principles about what we're doing as a congregation and individually as we participate in the church's musical tradition. And uh, some of these things may be obvious to you all, and some of them uh, may be obscure and strange. Uh, but uh, again, one of the goals I had tonight was to make explicit some of the assumptions that have guided uh, my work as music director. In uh, trying to think about how to get this started, I, I, I realized that since Father Glenn has been teaching about uh, John 17, um, on Wednesday nights, there's actually uh, an interesting connection at the risk of making a gratuitous segue from one uh, event to another. Um, the uh, 17th chapter of John's Gospel uh, is, uh, is taken up with the remarkable prayer of Jesus. And the very first verse of the next chapter, chapter 18, tells us that when Jesus uh, finished praying, he and the disciples left the upper room and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, in the parallel passage in St. Matthew's Gospel, there's a detail that St. John doesn't include, and uh, he indicates that before they left the room, they sang a hymn together. And the Greek text literally says, they hymned together. Uh, it's interesting to ask what they sang. Uh, probably, according to a lot of commentators, since it was a Passover uh, celebration, they probably sang uh, one or more of the psalms that historically are tied to the Passover celebration, which was Psalm 113 through 118. Now, if we believe, as I think we do, that the, the church is constituted by the Eucharist, then that hymning together after the Last Supper, which was the first Eucharist, that's the beginning of the church's history of music, interestingly. And the history of the church's music is in many respects a history of the whole church. Um, and I think the more familiar we are and the more intimate, intimately familiar we are with the church's musical history, the more that we can share in the experience of the faith of generations of saints from, from previous generations. And a huge portion of the church's musical history is taken up with the Psalms. I have to share at the risk of offending someone but since I had my heart attack eight years ago, I now say since I should be dead, I'm going to be candid. That's my new motto. Um, we need to sing more psalms. Psalms should be uh, a, a, a more rich part of our life, uh, our, our liturgical life. And I know for those who, uh, who use the morning and evening prayer uh, liturgies in our prayer book, there are regular psalms. Uh, but I, it would be a good thing for us to have the Psalms embedded in our life. And next week, Sarah is going to spend some time teaching us how we can have a fruitful experience chanting the Psalms as a private devotional exercise. But I'm hoping that some of the things we learn with her can be carried over into our life together post-quarantine, or PQ, as we call it here. Now, for a great deal of the church's history, uh, the, the principal texts sung by Christians were taken for psalms. In fact, in the Church of England, it's not until the 18th century that uh, it was, you were allowed to sing anything other than psalms uh, in the C of E. That's not just those narrow, uh, exclusive psalmody Presbyterians that said that. Uh, it's, I think, in, the, in about 1700 that, that they did allow hymnody. And for about 80 years, there were only six hymns 
that were that were actually approved. Three of them communion hymns, two Easter hymns, and one Christmas carol. Uh, while shepherds watched, actually, which is why she oh, a little footnote. While shepherds watched, has <laughs> more tunes associated with it than any hymn or carol in history, and it's partly because for about 80 years it was the only thing you could sing at Christmas time officially as part of the service. The Psalms, whether a literal singing of the Psalms, uh, a literal uh, prose translation from the Hebrew, or uh, uh, what we call a metrical paraphrase, they were a huge part of the, and in many instances, the exclusive part of the church's worship together. I found a lovely quote from uh, the Bishop of Constantinople in the late fourth century, Sir, uh, St. John uh, Chrysostom. Uh, if the faithful are keeping vigil in the church, David is first, middle, and last. If at dawn anyone wishes to sing hymns, David is first, middle, and last. At funeral processions and burials, David is first, middle, and last. In the holy monasteries, among the ranks of the heavenly warriors, David is first, middle, and last. In the convents of virgins who are imitators of Mary, David is first, middle, and last. But the Psalms were not the exclusive source of, of, of hymning, of, of, of singing in the church. Um, in Ephesians 5, uh, we all know that St. Paul refers to psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, uh, and there are passages in the New Testament which almost, are almost certainly quotations from early Christian hymns. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, uh, St. Paul is probably quoting or paraphrasing what was a common liturgical hymn uh, in his day. Um, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, I'll let you all look these up later. 1 Timothy 3.16, Ephesians 5.14, and Hebrews 1.3 are probably all taken from hymns that were already part of the church's uh, liturgical life. So again, they weren't just singing, uh, singing psalms. But the bulk of what was present is certainly psalms. Um, the greatest early hymn writer, St. Ambrose, uh, was also very committed to, um, to the Psalters, the centrality of the Psalters' role. And I want to read from one of his observations, and he's so wonderfully poetic, uh, talking about the, the benefits of the Psalms. And he's clearly talking not just about the Psalms in the, in the formal liturgical life of the church, as you'll see, but Psalms as part of the everyday experience of believers. Uh, what is more pleasing than a psalm? David himself puts it nicely. Praise the Lord, for he says, for, he says, for a psalm is good. And indeed, a psalm is the blessing of the people, the praise of God, the commendation of the multitude, the applause of all, the speech of every man, the voice of the church, the sonorous profession of faith, devotion full of authority, the joy of liberty, the noise of good cheer, and the echo of gladness. It softens anger, it gives release from anxiety, it alleviates sorrow. It is protection at night, instruction by day, a shield in time of fear, a feast of holiness, the image of tranquility, a pledge of peace and harmony, which produces one song from various and sundry voices in the manner of a cithara. Cithara was an ancient instrument. The day's dawning resounds with a psalm with a psalm, it, its passing echoes. 
The apostle admonishes women to be silent in church, yet they do well to join in a psalm. This is gratifying for all ages and fitting for both sexes. Old men ignore the stiffness of age to sing a psalm, and melancholy veterans echo it in the joy of their hearts. Young men sing one without the bane of lust, as do adolescents, without threat from their insecure age or the temptation of sensual pleasure. Even young women sing psalms with no loss of wifely decency, and girls sing a hymn to God with sweet and supple voice while maintaining decorum and suffering no lapse of modesty. Youth is eager to understand a psalm, and the child who refuses to learn other things takes pleasure in contemplating it. It is a kind of play productive of more learning than that which is dispensed with stern discipline. Remarkable passage. This is from one of his commentaries. Uh, it's actually from a commentary on, uh, I think, Psalm 14, if I'm not mistaken. Now, before he was Bishop of Milan, a position that he took in 374, St. Ambrose had been serving in a civic post in northern Italy. He was trained in the law. He's best remembered for uh, three achievements that have sustained the life of the church for centuries. First, his dynamic preaching against the Arian heresy, and then his role in the conversion and baptism of St. Augustine. And then finally, his belief in the importance of hymn singing in the life of the church. He's often been called the father of hymnody. He saw the experience of music as an expression of divine reality. Uh, Calvin Stapert, in his book on the life of music in the early church, writes that for Ambrose, music was, quote, an echo of God's word and spirit. In the people who are the instruments of the operations of God, they hear music which echoes from the melodious sound of God's word within which the Spirit of God works. Uh, I wanted to read a little bit from Augustine's Confessions also, if I can find, I thought I had all my books here, here they are. Uh, Augustine has this wonderful account in book nine of singing hymns uh, in uh, Milan uh, around St. Ambrose's church. Uh, not, uh, the faithful of the church in Milan had begun to find mutual comfort and encouragement in the liturgy through the practice of singing hymns, in which everyone fervently joined with voice and heart. It was about a year earlier, or not much more, that Justina, mother of the boy Emperor Valentinian, had been persecuting your faithful Ambrose in the interests of the Arian heresy by which she had been laid astray. His God-fearing congregation, prepared to die with their bishop, your servant, stayed up all night in the church. By the way, use of the second person, your, of course, all of Augustine's confessions, it's addressed to God. So it's all in like an extended prayer. So Ambrose is staying up all night in the church. Your maidservant, my mother, Augustine says, was among them, foremost in giving support and keeping vigil and constant in her life of prayer. As for us, we were still cold, not yet being warmed by the fire of your spirit. This is before his conversion. Yet we too were stirred as alarm and excitement shook the city. It was then that the practice was established of singing hymns and psalms in the manner customary in regions of the East to prevent, he's talking about the church in the, the Eastern church, what we now would, the region where we would now say orthodoxy reigns 
to prevent the people losing heart and fainting from weariness. It has persisted from that time until the present. And in other parts of the world also, many of your churches imitate the practice. Indeed, nearly all of them. Not only did uh, Ambrose write a lot of hymns, um, he wrote poetry uh, that had distinctive, uh, distinctive features, and he introduced two common features that shaped the liturgical music of the church. And here I'm quoting from an article by Vincent Lenti, which I think there's a link to it, Cantica Sacra. If you look at the um, page on St. Ambrose uh, under the navigational, uh, if you click on the navigation bar under poets, you'll see uh, St. Ambrose. Uh, Lenti points out that, that Ambrose introduced the practice of having the Psalms sung antiphonally. He would have the singers in two different groups, which alternated the singing, which we've been doing when we've had evening prayer uh, at All Saints. Um, as Lenti writes, this ancient method of singing, a practice observed among the Jews, is said to have been introduced to Christianity by St. Ignatius of Antioch, and from Antioch it spread to other churches in the Eastern Empire. But secondly, Ambrose introduced, and this is very important, the singing of metrical hymns. That is, hymns in whatever language you were singing, whether Latin or now we sing in English, or it could be in German or French, hymns that included a, a, a regular rhythmical pattern, a certain number of syllables in each line. That was entirely unknown in the Western Church until St. Ambrose introduced it. And he wrote a lot of poems uh, uh, that follow that metrical, that metrical pattern. Um, Lenti points out that uh, St. Hilary of Poitiers had previously attempted to introduce hymn singing, and he might be credited with being the first Latin hymn writer. However, Lenti says, Hilary was unsuccessful in teaching people to sing hymns, and the surviving fragments of Hilary's hymns suggest that they were poorly composed and not appropriate for congregational singing. Now, there was a time when uh, a lot of uh, historians and theologians and uh, musicians attributed dozens of hymns to St. Ambrose. Today, it's generally accepted that only about four, only four of these can with, certain, with confidence be attributed to him. One that was traditionally attributed to him, but probably isn't, and I think in our hymnal is attributed to Ambrose, is the Tedeum Laudamus, which we sing typically uh, every Sunday, or used to back when we, in the old days, when we, when we actually used to meet on Sunday mornings. Um, and we sing it as a sequence hymn. The sequence hymn is traditionally sung after the Alleluia and before the reading of the Gloria. Of course, during Lent, we don't have an Alleluia. Um, we have a tract instead. But as I suggested today, most scholars suggest that this probably wasn't the work of St. Ambrose. But interesting thing about the Tedeum, it probably does date to the fourth century, uh, so it is at least that old, um, and it's been a re it was a re regular part of the Benedictine monastic life since at least the sixth century. Now, the reason I want to cover all this history is I want to point out that when we sing this, uh, and some of you I know are singing at home, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, when we sing this, we are actively participating. We are actively participating in the ongoing life of the church in a really concrete way. Uh, and I want to talk about the idea of, of participation, which is a favorite noun for Father Glenn. <laughs> uh, 
and Father Sean, uh, but also receptivity, which is another posture, if you will, that I think is important for us to keep in mind when we think about what we do with our music. Um, in his very helpful book, The Meaning of Tradition, the Roman Catholic theologian Eve Congar writes that St. Paul considers the act of transmitting and receiving or of holding and keeping to, the ver to be the very substance or working rule of the faith by which communities are built up. And he cites a number of footnotes in St. Paul's letters to, to demonstrate that. We receive, uh, the word tradition you may know comes from the, uh, a root meaning to hand on something. Something is handed on to us and we receive it and then we hand it on uh, to the next generation. Unfortunately, many people think that that act of reception, of receiving, is a passive thing. Uh, it is not a passive thing. In fact, uh, when it's only a passive thing, that's when traditionalism, uh, rather than a living tradition, uh, becomes common. It actually requires attentive action to receive a tradition well, as well as the virtue of receptivity. And one of the things I've been trying to do with Kantika Sacra since I started was to promote a greater awareness of this amazing inheritance that we have, a, a musical inheritance that we have. Um, some of the inheritance that the church has that uh, is in our hymnal, and I want to give a little plug for uh, suggesting that if your family doesn't have uh, one of our hymnals in the home, you really should think about getting one. Um, when uh, our kids were little, one of the things we decided to do uh, by the time they could read was to give them their own hymnals so that they realized that when we sang together in family worship, this was not what mom and dad did. It's not some, it was their, they were receiving the tradition. They were part of it. And they had, just as they had their own Bibles and, uh, and later their own prayer books, uh, they, they also had their own hymnals. And the hymnal that we have, uh, it's, it, it's not perfect, but it does have some remarkable uh, representations of the tradition. I counted this afternoon, and there are almost a hundred pre-Reformation hymns in our hymnal, which for a, a non-Roman Catholic hymn is, is pretty remarkable. We can thank uh, John Mason Neal for a lot of that and the, uh, the, uh, the Oxford movement uh, for for promoting a recovery of Greek and Latin hymnody. Uh, and a lot of it is represented in our hymnal and, and, and we should really cherish it. Um, I've often, th I've long thought of the, the culture of the church as an inheritance uh, or a legacy. And I think in contemporary society, a culture is more of a collection of commodities. If you think about the difference between uh, what, people used to refer to as a way of life, uh, and you contrast that with the word lifestyle, which is more common now than the phrase way of life. Way of life sounds kind of old-fashioned and, and, uh, and uh, perhaps uh, limiting. Lifestyle sounds dynamic, but when we have a lifestyle instead of a way of life, it's very individualistic. We are consumers uh, rather than recipients. Um, and I think that the, the proper posture for a believer, since our faith is not individualistic, uh, and since we're not sovereign consumers when we receive our faith, um, 
the, uh, that, that we should realize that the culture of the church is this remarkable legacy. Uh, a lot of our experience of media puts us in the position of being uh, what I think of as passive consumers of sensations. And here I'm going to try to share a slide. We'll see if this works. Uh, okay, let's see if I can make this work. Is that working? I guess it is. Um, that we, th we think of ourselves as passive, passive consumers of sensations. Um, I want to suggest that, that actually we should think of ourselves very much as active uh, because when we receive an inheritance, we do so with attentiveness. Is this showing up? Not, not if the slide is showing up. Okay, good. Um, and then secondly, I would suggest that we're, again, we need to see ourselves as recipients, not as consumers, that, that we have been handed something that we will then hand on to others. And instead of just, and here I'm particularly thinking of how we receive music. Sometimes it's just pleasant noise. Um, I think it was Malcolm Sargent, the great English conductor, who once said, the English don't really think much about music, but they, but they enjoy the noise it makes. Um, if you perceive music just as a pleasant oral sensation, uh, you're not really recognizing uh, the, the meaning that's present in it. And, and so uh, th this, I think, to think of ourselves when we receive the music, and it's not just something we can receive uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the worship service. This is something that we can receive uh, even through recordings or through uh, uh, websites like Kantika Sacra. We're not doomed to be just passive consumers of sensations. Um, okay, there, that worked. Um, I wanted to mention, I won't read the whole thing, but I did want to mention, some of you may be familiar with C.S. Lewis's book, An Experiment in Criticism. And there he talks about the difference between using literature or music and receiving. He also uses the, the idea of reception. Uh, and he talks about how active it is. He said, and he talked here, writing about, uh, early in the book, writing about receiving a work of art. He says, we must look and go on looking till we have certainly seen what is there. We sit down before the picture in order to have something done to us, not that we may, not that we may do things with it. The first demand any work of art makes upon us is surrender. Look, listen, receive. Get yourself out of the way. Then he puts in parentheses, there's no good asking first whether the work before you deserves such a surrender, for until you have surrendered, you cannot possibly find out. Uh, then he talks also about music. He says there's a parallel between uh, people using music or receiving music. He says people who really know how to receive music, who are active in the reception of it, uh, have a deeper understanding. He said they may they may hum or whistle a tune that they hear, but he says they don't do it while the music is going on, <laughs> only in reminiscence, as we quote favorite lines of verse to ourselves. When, again, serious receivers of music have grasped the structure of the whole work, have received into their imagination the composer's invention, which is at once sensuous and intellectual. That is, there's something meaningful as well as something 
that has uh, a sensory pleasure. They may have an emotion about it, but it's a different sort of emotion and towards a different sort of object. It's an emotion impregnated with intelligence, yet it is also far more sensuous because it's more tied to the ear. It's tied to an exacting form of listening. And then he concludes, as the first demand of the picture is look, the first demand of the music is listen. The composer may begin by giving out a tune which you could whistle, but the question is not whether you particularly like that tune. Wait, attend, see what the composer is going to make of the tune. Okay, uh, I've taken up probably more time. I want to close with one last thing and then uh, take some questions. Uh, and that is, again, to focus on um, the idea of, of participation and receptivity. Uh, there's a wonderful essay, or it was originally an article in a theological journal um, called On the Theological Basis of Church Music by Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict. And he's talking about how Vatican II really stressed the importance of the active participation of the whole people of God in the liturgy. And uh, he's, he said, unfortunately, the idea of active participation is fatally narrowed down by many people, giving the impression that active participation is only present where there is evidence of external activity. He does note that one of the articles in the documents from Vatican II did speak of silence as a mode of active participation, which is a remarkable point. To be silent within liturgy is a mode of active participation. But then he goes on and says that listening, listening is active participation. Listening is the receptive employment of the senses and the mind. Spiritual participation are, sure, are surely just as much activity as speaking is. And then he, 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 so he wants to stress the fact that, uh, that receptivity is a mode of action. It's a mode of activity and a mode of participation. I want to see if I can do one more slide uh, from, uh, if I can find it on my computer. Well, um, for some reason, I don't see that screen anymore. So I may have, uh, Let's see, hold on one second. There we are. Uh, let's see, is that, you get a slide or are you just seeing, you see a slide? Human creativity that does not want to be receptivity and participation is by very nature absurd and untrue since humanity, humans can only be themselves through receptivity and participation. That is, uh, yeah, our, we receive our nature and we participate in divine being and then participate in, 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 uh, in, in Christ's humanity. Uh, so th that, again, that's a, uh, that's a, uh, the idea that, uh, that creativity requires us do, doing something other than receiving uh, is, uh, is unfortunately flawed.